0: Welcome to the Retail Focus Podcast, a weekly collection of news, interviews, and information from the world of retail.
1: Welcome to this week's edition of the Retail Focus Podcast. I'm Trent Kling. Coming up on this week's episode, we continue our ICSC interview series by talking with Matt Montgomery, Managing Director at Calibrate. He'll join us to discuss location-based analytics, how important those are becoming in retail, and how they help inform retailers' decisions, whether you talk about maybe opening new locations, closing existing locations, creating additional curb cuts in existing locations, and so forth. In news, we've got a couple of different stories, both having to do with June retail sales, and we look ahead to the ever-present Amazon Prime Day, where some other retailers have decided they won't be playing Along, a quick reminder that you can check us out on social media at Retail Podcast, both Instagram and Twitter, and that this week's episode is brought to you by Bams. You can visit Bams.com/slash/paywell today to start saving on your payments processing. So, in our first news story, Costco reveals June sales, and they are as robust as ever for the wholesale retailer. Of course, raw comps and sales numbers are boosted significantly by inflation as With all retailers, but even then, Costco is outpacing inflation metrics in most major categories. U.S. comps for them were up 13.2% when you exclude impacts from gas prices. If you include the gas prices, up 21.5%. But in terms of that 13.2% gain, that puts them up to 11% comp gains, eliminating gasoline for the year to date. That would be inclusive of 44 weeks. Also, it's important to note the inclusion of one additional day in this year's June sales period due to independence day timing. However, this only impacted comps positively by about 2%. So you look, comps are still massively positive, up over 11% for the month. Now, as far as greater macro trends, we can perhaps glean from this. Again, it comes back to what a lot of analysts have noted about the bulk buying behaviors learned during the pandemic by consumers. Some of the pantry filling that took place in 2020 may have stuck in shoppers' heads. And now in an era of inflation and people tightening those pocketbooks, books are returning to bulk purchasing as a method to keep costs down. Also, continued inventory management concerns from other retailers including maybe having too much of some product in certain circumstances and too little of product in others, that might be enticing people to stock up when given the opportunity as they don't want to have to deal with out-of-stocks later. Now, to this point, Costco's traffic was up 9% in the U.S., cart growth accounting for the remaining 4.2% in comp sales boosts. Essentially, you have more members than ever and they're making Costco trips, and existing members are making trips more frequently, just generally more people passing through the doors at Costco, and they're spending more money when they do so. Overall sales for Costco as a company were up 20.4%, talking top-line revenue there, although impact to EBITDA might be limited a little bit due to the low-margin nature of gas, which was, of course, a major driver behind revenue growth, but maybe not as much As you might have expected, gas comp sales were up 7.4% when you take them in isolation. And the average price per gallon at Costco was up about 57% from last year. So you see here people buying significantly less gasoline. I don't think it's that they're buying less of it at Costco and more at other places. But we really are seeing people kind of pull back at the pump a little bit, fill up a little less often. Overall top line for Costco benefited from the addition of 23 new warehouses open during this June versus 2021. That would be 23 net new warehouses open, that is. Regarding a breakdown of the areas with the most growth for Costco in terms of sales, Texas and the Midwest led the way. Some other positives, perhaps, for consumers on the inflation front were given on the recorded conference call that, Costco has that accompanies their monthly sales reports overall food and sundries inflation did increase sequentially so that's not so good however fresh foods inflation was lower in June versus May and this may be a positive sign for retailers as we have mentioned ad nauseum of late because fresh is driving the bulk of comp sales growth and fresh is expected to continue to do so for many grocers and general merchandisers so slowed inflation in those categories may allow retailers to continue to drive comp increases through fresh rather than pricing sensitive consumers maybe out of some of those category items so that is a slight positive to come from costco's call Aside from of course the positivity in sales now our second news story this week also has to do with some macro level positivity as mall traffic ticked up at the end of June versus where it was at the beginning of June. This comes via Globe Street, and the report from Globe Street actually takes on kind of a pessimistic headline here, which reads, and I quote, Malls have their summer of discontent. Now, not all of the numbers cited in the report were positive, but there are reasons for optimism heading into the second half of summer, including the last couple of weeks for june now the data for this report comes from placer.ai data which is the ubiquitous location data company takes location data from mobile devices and matt montgomery a little bit later on we'll discuss more about location data from mobile devices in our interview on the show so we felt it worked pretty well with this news story and a big caveat here of course is that this data is indicative only of traffic not of how much people are spending when they get there. So it's possible people could be spending more or maybe less per visit. The data really is only speaking to visits or foot traffic in isolation. The sample size for the report from Placer.ai for June is 100 locations each of indoor malls, open air centers, and outlet malls. So Overall, you look at June, year over year, traffic to indoor malls, That was actually up 1.5%, so maybe not befitting the headline here. You kind of figure maybe they had the headline written before the data came out. Traffic was up 0.5% for open-air lifestyle centers, but the category that took a hit traffic-wise was outlet malls. Their traffic saw a 6.7% year-over-year decline for June this all, granted, looks pretty favorable and mall traffic in general looks pretty favorable versus the year-over-year drop in traffic for superstores, apparel, and grocery, all of which saw traffic down in the mid-single digits, all of which saw traffic down at least 3.8%. But getting back to the outlet malls, typically we'd expect traffic to off-price and outlet retailers to tick up in an environment where customers are increasingly price-sensitive But the Globe Street report actually makes kind of a compelling argument for why outlet malls might be struggling. First, they're typically located in outlying areas and not necessarily in major population centers. So travel to these outlet malls, travel to these locations is necessitated, oftentimes a 10 to 20 to 30 mile car trip. And so people may think twice with gas prices the way they are. We talked about in the Costco story, people seem to be filling up less often during the course of June because of gas price increases and maybe some other macroeconomic factors. But a good example of where you see this as it relates to outlet malls is just north of my regular home in Colorado Springs. The major outlet mall center for Colorado Springs, Denver, kind of that front range area, is actually in Castle Rock, which is midway between Colorado Springs and Denver. So unless you live in Castle Rock, if you live in Denver, you live in Colorado Springs, that's going to create a as much as 30 to 40 mile drive for you each way. Usually it's about a 45 minute trek. As such, people might be thinking twice about heading out to those outlying towns. And the other thing is many outlet malls find their home in tourist locations. I'm actually recording this episode in Orlando. There are several outlet malls near me in close proximity to Universal Studios and Disney. And again, there might be a potential muting effect on tourism as a whole with inflation and gas prices the way they are. Now, if there was a muting effect, you certainly couldn't tell it because the traffic in Orlando is absolutely awful, but still something to keep in mind when we're thinking about traffic going to those outlet malls during the course of the summer. And if you wish to compare traffic numbers to pre-pandemic levels for outlet malls, things look a lot starker as traffic levels versus 2019 were down 14.3% in June for outlet malls. They were actually down pretty significantly for indoor malls and open air centers as well, 95 and 9.4% respectively. However, regarding those indoor malls and open air centers, this doesn't speak to sales, which have reportedly exceeded 2019 levels at many mall-based retailers and certainly they have at the publicly based mall-based retailers who are showing signs of sales beyond in many cases what they were seeing pre-pandemic perhaps indicating that maybe people are going to these locations less often than 2019 but they're spending more per visit which again might come back to a learned behavior during the course of the pandemic But back to that positive point we made in the open of this story regarding the last few weeks of June. The cadence of mall visits suggests that retailers could be in for maybe a very good July if the trends hold, aside from those outlet malls, of course. Visits to indoor properties and those outdoor lifestyle centers hit a low from June 6th through the 13th. But since that point... Things have ticked up sequentially. In comparison to 2019, traffic looked much better throughout late June. Numbers were down just mid-single digits versus pre-pandemic, and that's versus the high single digits. They were down for the month in aggregate. And you take this and you couple those with numbers that, as I talked about earlier, suggest that people are spending more per visit, indicates a potential for a good start to Q3, maybe a better-than-expected start, to Q3, given the macroeconomic conditions for retailers. Now, for the record, numbers in late June, at least comparatively, were similar to mall traffic numbers in April and May. And that happened to be, when you think back a couple of months ago, when we saw a glut of articles touting people returning to malls in droves, especially the younger generations. So we're seeing those traffic levels move up a little bit towards the end of June, Indications are so far that they continue to be at or above that level here in July so far. So, of course, you got to take all of these prognostications or potential situations with a grain of salt. Traffic levels could pull back at any time. And of course, coming off the pandemic, and some people would argue we're not really off the pandemic, but when you look at the last couple of years, if there's one thing that we've learned, it's that another virus outbreak or another macroeconomic happening could certainly constrain traffic to malls almost immediately so these traffic levels could pull back at any time obviously macroeconomic uncertainty but you look at covid waves news media has been noting of late a more contagious strain now making the rounds and so people may be more hesitant to go out in public in certain circumstances depending on kind of where their personal mindset is at. And obviously those with maybe autoimmune issues will be hesitant to make those treks to the mall under such conditions. So just a little bit of a caveat there. So I would say right now, things shaping up pretty good for July for these shopping centers, but you never know when that next big news story could hit and it could hit before we even release this podcast, of course. So just something to keep in mind. But overall, I think the numbers relatively healthy when you look at mall traffic considering the sales per visit to these customers that are making the trip to the mall. Coming up after this break we'll be joined by Matt Montgomery once again he's a managing director at Calibrate. He'll join us to discuss the importance of location-based analytics when it comes to retail decision making. He'll talk about the genesis of these location-based analytics as well where we were 10 or 20 years ago how we've changed a little bit from guesswork into things that are more concrete so a retailer can be more sure of what they're getting as far as the data is concerned. It's a fascinating conversation. He'll join us right after this. BAMS! Are you accepting credit cards in your business? Of course, you are if you're a retailer, and if you're not, then you definitely should be. But did you know that Stripe is not your only or best option for payment processing? You can get paid well with BAMS. BAMS is a national payment solution provider with automated next day deposits and major savings when compared directly to Stripe paypal and square bam's provides competitive pricing and deposits directly into your bank account in as little as 12 hours visit bam's.com paywell for a limited time and get a 50 dollars visa gift card after completing your rate analysis to see how much you can save again that's bam's.com paywell p-a-y-w-e-l-l today to start saving and as always the link is in our show notes We're back with our interview series at ICSC, and we're pleased to now be joined by Matt Montgomery. He's the Managing Director at Calibrate. We're gonna talk a little bit about analytics, and specifically, location-based analytics. To start off with, Matt, if you don't mind just giving us a little bit of a background on what Calibrate does on the day-to-day.
0: Yeah, so Calibrate's, uh, and Trent appreciate the connection today, so Calibrate's a firm that's focused on helping operators across industry understand those factors that impact unit performance or store performance and then developing customized solutions to help them to inform real estate and marketing-focused decisions that they're trying to make. So we're big believers in bringing together the appropriate mix of data, consulting, and technology and a relevant combination to bring to bear for each client's individual and specific needs.
1: And I think that's an important part because you mentioned it's a confluence of multiple things it's not just about data it's not just about technology when you go through the process of meeting with a retailer how do you determine the mix, the particular approach to meet that retailer's needs?
0: Yeah, it's a great question. And ultimately, our focus is on meeting folks where they want or need to be met. So you'll have some retailers or organizations where they have really expansive, seasoned analytics teams internally, and they have a lot of experience working with predictive models. And so they want to collaborate and work and have a partner in the development of those solutions. And so they may already have pre-existing software and technologies that they're So we may or may not bring additional software to bear, but ultimately it's designing that solution to meet their needs. The kind of the flip side of that would be, you know, smaller emerging operators where you've got a chief development officer or head of real estate and she or he is kind of a one person shop. So we were needing to bring to bear a different suite of solutions to be able to help she or he ultimately perform and make decisions in a really efficient manner. So it truly is, you know, better understanding the internal resources available from a people and a technology perspective and then augmenting or supplementing accordingly.
1: And then on that note, what are the top factors you push
0: retailers to take into consideration when breaking into a new market? Yeah, so there are some key themes, McKenna, that we like to emphasize. First is understanding or defining what the trade area is that's served by your pre-existing stores or locations, right? So it really all begins with an accurate delineation of where folks are coming from to shop at your store or to dine at your restaurant, etc. From there, there are some other foundational analytical steps that we undertake. Developing what we think of as a customer profile. So the demographic and psychographic characteristics that help to explain who your customers are relative to all consumers that might be within that trade area. So customer profiling is a big piece quantifying competitive impacts is another one. So we need to account for the impact that direct and indirect competitors have on store performance. And I would say really that customer profile and the competitive piece are two big ones. We also do quite a bit of work in the cannibalization realm. So quantifying the transfer, if you were to open a new location, how is that going to impact the pre-existing stores or units that you operate in that same market? So there are a whole host of different variables and factors that go into the modeling process, but certainly trading areas, customer profile, competition, those are three big ones, and then being able to layer in and factor in that transfer cannibalization impact as well.
1: There's a lot to unpack there, but first I want to take a step back a little bit. Sure. Could you give us an idea of what the analytics landscape was or what the location type landscape was before a platform like Calibrate or before a system like Calibrate came aboard?
0: Yeah, so, you know, there are companies dating back to the late 70s, early 80s that from a consulting perspective were in the process or their business was focused on developing forecasting solutions for clients kind of fast forwarding into the late 90s, what we typically saw was that you had disparate or disconnected solutions. So you would have the consulting capability, but not have software to be able to integrate those models for operators, individual users or teams to be able to leverage themselves. And so in late 90s, early 2000s, we kind of saw in the landscape, multiple firms that began marrying that combination of consulting and software into a singular suite of solutions that they could provide to operators. So I would say, you know, we're, 2022. We're 20 years post that kind of development of the integration of consulting and software. Really, the key themes today are now as we think about data, varying levels of first-party data that our clients provide to us to analyze, but from a third-party data perspective, we think about the advent of mobility data over the course of the past six, seven years. So being able to use those cell phones and mobile devices to learn more about consumer patterns and behaviors, that's really been a game changer, certainly in our space and on behalf of our clients in terms of helping them understand you know, more about their business and about their competitors' businesses.
1: And understanding something about the competitor's business is almost as important as understanding it about your own business. What type of data analytics reporting in terms of consulting are you capable of doing as far as apprising a retailer of competition or maybe if a competitor moves in and fringes on that territory a little bit? Yeah,
0: so a lot of what we do, it's very custom to the individual client that would engage us first and foremost. So if we're quantifying competitive impacts for 10 different clients, there are 10 different scenarios where there's maybe the availability or lack thereof in certain competitive data, whether it's third-party data that we can license. So in the grocery sector, there are data sets that have you know sales volumes associated with grocery store locations. In the banking sector, there is loan and deposit detail that we can go and source and license. And you Utilize in our analyses but there is no for the vast majority of our clients across industry there's no magical third-party data set that has accurate sales volumes associated with each brick-and-mortar location that a competitor might have so you have to begin to get a bit creative, right? So geofencing competitor locations, querying device activity, and utilizing that in part to inform, well, what are the trade areas that those competitors serve? What's the demographic and psychographic profile of their customer population? How does that sync up with or differentiate relative to the consumers that you as the client serve and support? So a variety of different ways that we think about and look at competition, it would just vary based on the client, the sector, and the availability of other certain third-party data sets as well.
1: One of the other interesting things you mentioned is cataloging where customers are coming from, how they might be approaching a particular potential location. How do retailers use this information to maybe inform even something as simple as curb cuts?
0: Yeah. So, you know, and you've actually touched on now with curb cut site characteristics. And I failed to mention that earlier on when we think about the key factors that we want to account for that impact store performance. We're big believers in being able to quantify the impact that site and situational characteristics have on store performance. Think everything from the quality and type of signage to the number of ingress egress points, amount of available parking spaces, Those factors, depending upon the operator, can have a significant impact on the performance and success of a particular store. So understanding migration patterns of consumers, where they're coming from, and then how do we best accommodate those consumers to ensure that we're maximizing our capture, it's a critical, critical step in the process. That's another tricky scenario where there is no magical third-party data set that exists of site characteristics on a national scale that we can go and easily license. So we work in a very collaborative fashion with our clients to design scorecards to effectively capture and compile that data when that enables us at that point to use it analytically on their behalf. So a lot of art and a lot of science too that goes into that site characteristics piece.
1: When part of the art and science is understanding what that retailer needs, and I'm curious, we've kind of talked around it to this point, but what does that dialogue include when a retailer first approaches you and says, hey, we need X, Y, or Z? What does that dialogue look like going back and forth to determine what a retailer really needs? Because they, in some cases, might not even know what they really need. Some of it is first
0: understanding where they're at in the journey, right? So what an emerging operator with 20, 30, 40 locations might need is going to differ substantially from what a mature operator with hundreds, if not thousands of locations. So that's a critical piece, number one. Number two, what business question are they trying to solve for, right? Because even the mature operators, think about a dollar general where they're still opening a thousand plus stores a year. They are still rapidly growing and scaling out. Whereas you may have other retailers that they've kind of built out their brick and mortar footprint. So it's more about solving for a question related to, well, where should I think about a closure or a repositioning or a relocation in addition to potentially some infill and net new stores as well? So it really is this combination of where is that retailer in terms of their life cycle and life stage, right? From a startup emerging concept to a mature brand. But then also what key business questions are they actually trying to solve for? And really it's that latter piece more than anything that will steer and guide okay, what does that in solution look like or should it look like? The beauty is we're not pulling canned products off the shelf so to speak. Everything is designed and built literally from the ground up from scratch so that if they have an operator has a very specific question, our consulting capabilities can ultimately address those.
1: I think that's a great point, too, because not every retailer is trying to solve for expansion and opening a 1,000 locations. We talk about relocations, potential closures in certain circumstances. I always like to ask people about the future of their given fields. And I don't want you to give away any company secrets, of course, but looking at a three to five-year window down the road, what excites you about where we're going as far as analytics, as far as data, working with these companies to identify the perfect solution for them in terms of whether it be a relocation, new location, existing location, what have you?
0: Well, I think one of the interesting trends, and this was even the case pre-COVID, but certainly with the onset of COVID, it, it just magnified further, is the whole notion of the interplay or the relationship between brick-and-mortar retail and e-commerce or other channels. So this omni-channel approach to meeting a consumer where they want and need to be met And how does the brick-and-mortar store location or series of locations fit into that larger holistic picture? That's a really exciting kind of development in our space that increasingly our clients across industry are saying, help us to get around and better understand it's that value of the consumer and how do we best meet that consumer's needs with brick-and-mortar storefronts being one component of the strategy. So our ability to analytically evaluate that and then provide insights to inform, that type of decision making. I'm really excited about where that is heading over the next three to five years. And then we're always on the lookout for more and better data. For us, the way we think about things, data is the means to the analytical end. It's the foundation of everything that we do. And so when we had mobility data really burst on the scene in the, call it the 2015 time frame, that was an exciting development, probably as exciting as anything that's come on the market since consumer segmentation systems in the 1980s. So I'm excited for what I don't know which is that next third-party data set that will hit the marketplace that provides another dimension to the analytical capabilities that we can ultimately bring to bear
1: one final question here is just a follow-up to this because you talk about certainly the mobile-based location data that was available in 2015 and 2016. What was the learning curve like surrounding that data? Because you have all of this data just flooding the marketplace, so to speak. How did you parse out what was actually important from maybe the noise in that?
0: Yeah, that's a that's a great question, a lot of work. I mean, that's the simple answer. I mean, first and foremost, we had to ensure that we had data partners that were privacy forward and privacy first Candidly, in the United States, it's been a bit of the Wild West in terms of, of that data historically. Now, you've seen with CCPA and other privacy legislation, announcements from various data compilers around you know, a restriction of how they're better protecting consumer privacy. So that was an initial significant consideration, but it's also understanding, too, well, how is the data being compiled? Because there's nuance to it. There's a big difference between data coming from an SDK or software development kit-based app resource versus something that's generated from an RTB or a bid stream data source. So just understanding that nuance and then developing methodologies to take the data that our suppliers provide and make it meaningful for our clients. Again, with a privacy-first approach, but also providing meaningful insights into, well, where are these folks coming from? What are their demographic and psychographic makeup and composition? And learning how to tease out certain data, to suppress certain data, but to make it meaningful all the same. So a lot of trial, a lot of error, a lot of intense work. There was no shortcut to that process.
1: Well, Matt, I appreciate you joining the show, helping us unpack some of this, because I know to someone that's not used to looking at these type of analytics, it's great to get a window inside your world. And it's even better to have someone that sounds better than I do on the <laughs> podcast here. So I appreciate your rock and radio voice here. Uh, I
0: appreciate it, Trent. My pleasure, and thank you very much. As always, we may have a position in or against companies we discuss on the podcast. Do not invest in stocks solely on the input of the podcast
1: hosts. Well, we thank Matt and also McKenna Langley for joining us on the show as we continue our ICSC Interview series next week. We'll be joined actually by a couple of attorneys that specialize in making sure everything is ironed out between retailers and landlords. We're going to be talking a little bit about lease dynamics, but the legal side of things. And it's a little bit more exciting than you might otherwise think. We'll look forward to that interview again coming up next week. Now, in our looking ahead story, We'll be looking ahead to the ever-present Prime Day that Amazon will be holding this coming week. And as always with Prime Day, the focus will be on Amazon, but it'll also be on other retailers who are offering maybe competing sales. Well, this year, Walmart, at least, isn't having any part of it. Walmart is running Definitely sales for back to school and running lower prices in other areas. But they have basically taken a pass on Prime Day or their approach to Prime Day this year saying, hey, we've already got low enough prices. We don't need to compete with this big traffic event. And also we know from historical data that traffic to all e-commerce websites, not just Amazon, does tick up on Prime Day as people scour the internet to do their shopping but target will be running a prime day like promotion so target will be promoting sales events that'll run during the same time as prime day it's bringing back their deal days promotions event from july 11th to the 13th the reason i think this is a big story this year is With some of the macroeconomic factors that we talked about in the first segment, I think people are going to be certainly deal shopping more than ever before, but also people may not have the discretionary income. At least some groups of people may not have the discretionary income that they had in 2021. Certainly have to believe that Prime Day last year was positively impacted by some of those stimulus payments that people were still hanging on to and people still had excess money around. Now, one thing retailers are focusing on heavily this year around Prime Day is their back-to-school push and we hope to be able to talk to some Deloitte data regarding back-to-school sales projections is one of their biggest reports every year is always the back-to-school sales report and some retailers are running these type of launches with Prime Day or in conjunction with Prime Day so As always, looking ahead to the traffic that some of these e-commerce sites see during Prime Day, will Amazon sales continue to tick up as they have every Prime Day, with the exception of the one that was, of course, delayed, but even that Prime Day was very, very robust once it happened. So will traffic be great, or will people pull back a little bit on spending and be focused a little bit more on back-to-school, some of those essentials that they have, if they have children or college-age Kids that are going to school out there so this next month is going to be a huge one for retail we already talked about traffic levels in malls we talked about traffic levels in grocers also going down throughout the course of june i feel like july and august are going to be huge months as far as retailers are concerned in terms of where traffic comes in and how much people are willing to spend with so many factors that are uncertain going ahead over the next eight weeks or so so that'll do it for this edition of the retail focus podcast a big thanks to bam's once again our sponsor you can visit bam's.com paywell today to start saving that link is in our show notes and we will be back with you again approximately seven days from now this has been the
0: retail focus podcast for more, visit our website at retailfocuspodcast.com and subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher. Follow us on Twitter at Retail Podcast.